Augustin Le Prince's education and life experience had peculiarly fitted him for this great work. As artist, scientist and mechanician, he had the trained eye, hand and brain needed to bring into harmony every phase of his invention. He had no staff of trained assistants or thoroughly equipped laboratory, and I bear witness that every dollar we both earned over and above the bare cost of living sank into a kind of bottomless well for experimental work on many lines immediately connected with his invention. Lizzie the Prince The Shadow Traps, Episode 21, First Principles, The Experiments Begin. I know why Le Prince didn't return to New York in 1890. The evidence is all circumstantial, but every piece of evidence I find only reinforces the theory. And I explain this theory in talks I gave at the Leeds International Film Festival in 2016, 17 and 18, each time to an audience of about 30 people. I have discerned a narrative arc, a twist and a denouement, and then another twist. However, there are still gaps and distractions, and new discoveries and new ways of seeing things. And as we reach the mid-1880s, there is such an abundance of subplots and adventures that remain to be explored that this project now becomes a mix of structured plot and hurried improvisation. So, let's gather up some of the main threads of the story now and see where we are. John Robinson Whitley Good old Jack had reappeared in New York. Last episode, we saw a photograph of him larger than life on the steps of Belmont House in New York, with the Le Princes sat around him like supporting actors. He had been travelling across the States, no doubt looking for new projects to take on, and in 1884 he found one. And this new project would lead John Whitley to finally make his mark on the world. As a book for exhibitions would tell it, he accidentally learnt that several American gentlemen meant to organise in London for the following year an exhibition of the arts, manufactures and products of North, Central and South America. Mr Whitley accordingly put himself into communication with the gentleman who had originated the idea and he offered to render them such assistance as he could on condition that the exhibition should not be of the international character they contemplated but be confined to exhibits from the United States. Eventually, they agreed to this modification, and the work was at once commenced. Whitley went to England, where he formed a council of welcome of around a thousand individuals in support of the project, and placed articles in the press hailing the venture. The book for exhibitions 
puts the number of articles at around 8,000, which might well be an exaggeration, although Whitley definitely did once again display his ability for getting press attention. He then started his campaign stateside. There was one interesting aspect of Whitley's plans. As four exhibitions put it, it was naturally unbecoming that the United States government should take the initiative and ask permission for an official exhibition to be held in the metropolis of the United Kingdom, just as it would have been equally absurd to expect that the British government should invite American citizens to come and exhibit in London evidence of their wealth and progress in civilization, seeing that, however much an exhibition of this kind might prove interesting to the individual Englishman, it could not possibly concern the British government as such. It therefore devolved upon private persons to take the initiative. Now this was a bold move by Whitley. This exhibition was breaking convention not just by focusing on an individual country, but by being a private enterprise rather than a government-sponsored one. It would call for marketing, fundraising, shares. Shares and John Whitley? How would they mix after the disasters of Whitley Partners? It was decided to hold the exhibition in London in 1886, and Whitley was not about to waste any time. He would be focusing his considerable energies on raising funds and support for his project, which would mean travelling between London and New York frequently throughout the 1880s, during which time he would not only be able to visit Louis, but would introduce him to several people who would later play critical roles in the story to come, not always in a good way. The Le Prince family were living in Belmont House between 168th and 169th Street and Broadway, then called the Boulevard, in Washington Heights, near to Highbridge, the Jumel Mansion, Morris Park and Harlem River. The family's financial position remained precarious, although outward appearances would have remained ostensibly middle class. Lizzie commented obliquely on this situation in her memoirs. When I told our maids, Phoebe Eadson and her helper, we could no longer retain their services, they refused to leave. Such loyalty deserves placing on record. Is this comment an accidental clue? It reminds me of another remark made by Lizzie that we heard a few weeks ago, when Lizzie had written with pride that one of the instructors at the Le Prince's Art School in Leeds had even demurred about taking the salary agreed on, saying that he had learned from my husband more than he had taught. Shall we make a note of this? I think that, possibly, Lizzie, by telling us one thing, is unwittingly telling us another. These are short anecdotes that, I believe, demonstrate the loyalty and gratitude that was genuinely shown towards the Le Princes. However, one might also infer that the Le Princes, from time to time, were unable, or found it difficult, to pay people. Things could not have been helped when Le Prince's work on Lincrusta Walton ended. 
the dissolution of the partnership between Le Prince and Pepper in 1885 created both financial concerns and new opportunities. He would turn to a new line of work, the creation of cycloramas showing Civil War battle scenes. But Le Prince also took the break from Lincrusta Walton as a chance to return to photography, but also to begin experiments on apparatus for producing animated pictures. Maybe he was getting the inventing bug. After all, everyone else seemed to be doing it. He himself had been heavily involved in licensing patents and in patent disputes at Whitley Partners. He had worked for Joseph Whitley, an inventor. He had helped John Whitley take on the Lincrusta Walton patent. He had helped James Bailey Hamilton and Archibald Ramsden sell their patent for the Vocalian organ in the USA. So he was already involved in that world. And he was an innovator already with his work in ceramics, for example. And whether it was Mybridge, Chinese fireworks, falling photographs animating a face, panorama work or something else, he had been, for several years, alive to the possibilities of motion pictures. And it was in the house on Washington Heights where, according to Marie Le Prince, her father began his US attempts at motion pictures. One of the first things Le Prince constructed was an extremely rudimentary device roughly made of wood and cardboard to test the principles behind the playing back of motion pictures. It was essentially a miniature Ferris wheel-like structure. Two large rings joined together by thin horizontal bars Pictures could be placed on this wheel which was then turned by a handle. A peephole viewer was attached so that the images passing by at its speed appeared animated. Now, we know that the idea of a wheel with images on spinning around to animate those images is not new. There were plenty of devices such as the Zoetrope that had been doing that for years. So, this ferris wheel machine seems to have been a version of this existing type of séance amusante. The device had some kind of peephole viewer, which was sensible, because if you look at one of these machines as a whole, at everything at once, your eyes don't quite know where to focus and it all becomes a bit of a mess. If your vision is constricted to one fixed space, which effectively becomes your screen area, all other images that would otherwise distract you are cut out, and so you get the full force of the images moving past in sequence and coming alive in that one space. There is no mention, perhaps because of the brevity of the descriptions, of an intermittent movement, and we do not know if the Ferris wheel viewer stood vertically like an actual Ferris wheel, or flat, i.e. spinning around left to right or right to left like a zoetrope. However, I'm tempted to say that it was vertical only because it would have been very easy to clarify and describe it as like a ferris wheel on its side, and nobody did. And were the images placed on the outside or the inside of the wheel? 
if they were placed on the outside and seen to the people viewer, then that is admittedly quite a rare approach. If the pictures were placed inside the wheel, will there have been slots placed at regular distances around the wheel so that when turned at speed, the slots merged into a static gap through which the animation could be seen? How complex was his first viewer? Years after Le Prince's disappearance, Adolphe went in search of any evidence of his father's machines. In 1898, he wrote to Gustave Frank, a woodturner who had made parts for Le Prince, looking for any evidence of this work done on the Ferris wheel machine. The special work I am after, wrote Adolphe, is bobbin-like or reel-like drums of wood, which later had spindles fixed through them. So, the centre of the device was a cotton reel-like drum of wood, with wooden spokes coming out of it, on which would be fixed, I assume, the double wheel. Adolphe also wrote to Le Prince's close friend Richard Wilson, stating that this machine showed the principle very well, which I feel is a detail that suggests that this device was ultimately a very rudimentary piece, done to help Le Prince dip his toe into the world of motion pictures. It wasn't an invention, rather it was probably a simple device to test first principles. But what did he play back on this machine, considering that there has been no mention of a camera yet? I think there were several options. He may have cannibalised existing technologies, taken apart a zoetrope, for example, and reverse-engineered it with a few tweaks of his own and used its images on his own device. He may have drawn a series of frames himself. He was an artist, after all. He may have created a sequence from photographs of posed movement. What I mean by that is that instead of capturing real movement as it happened, which I'm sure he couldn't do at that point, he may have simulated it with a series of still photographs of someone holding various poses that when played back together looked like movement. This was actually quite an old idea even then. In 1853, for example, photographic innovator Antoine Claudet had posed for a daguerreotype holding a cigarette to his mouth and then posed for another with his hand holding the cigarette away from his mouth so that flicking between the two images would create a crude illusion of him smoking. He even patented the device for showing this effect. It was an adaptation of a magic lantern slipping slide which allowed two phases of a simple movement to be projected by a sliding glass frame. Another example connected to this technique is a wonderful revolving self-portrait of the colourful pioneer photographer and balloonist Felix Nadar. Nadar had taken a series of photographs of himself. One has him facing the camera. The next has him turned ever so slightly to one side. Another has him turned even further to that side, and etc, etc. Another has him all the way round so that we see the back of his head, and the other photographs see him eventually come back to face the camera again. The result of these shots, when played back today, create a charming, stuttering sight of Nadar revolving, like a 19th century Talking Heads video. I mention Nadar, 
just because he was also instrumental in establishing the balloon flights out of Paris during the siege of 1870 and became the first person to take a photograph from the air and actually the first person to take a photograph from below ground level when he took an astounding sequence of the Paris catacombs pioneering artificial lighting with photography along the way. But I digress. Back to the point, which is that there are a number of ways in which Le Prince could have obtained or created the images to place on his Ferris wheel viewer. In January 1885, Le Prince employed a mechanic from Washington Heights named William Kuhn to build an apparatus resembling a magic lantern from sheet tin. And so, another device was also being built. Describing it as resembling a magic lantern could simply be referring to its general shape, which means the machine might possibly have been a camera, except that we also know that this device would also be fitted with gas burners, which would have provided light, and which means that the machine was intended as a projector. In fact, I could speculate that this machine that resembled a magic lantern might actually have just been one. If it had been made out of sheet tin and resembled a lantern, then it probably wouldn't have been especially big or especially strong. So how could it possibly have withstood the juddering speed of dozens if not hundreds of glass frames being hurled around inside it? And the idea of it being a lantern does make sense if we continue with the idea of Le Prince at this point working out first principles. So I can imagine him constructing first of all a ferris wheel viewer, just like a zoetrope and other devices that already existed, just so that he could work out for himself how to do the basics, how to create and understand a machine that allowed a person looking through a peephole to see animated pictures. And I can imagine him constructing a basic magic lantern projector so that he could play about with the strength of lights, with issues of focusing, etc., and practice projection. He was, I suspect, simply working slowly and thoroughly, taking all the constituent parts of motion pictures one at a time, learning everything in detail to prepare himself for a machine that would bring all these different elements together. To move on to the next level, however, Le Prince would need a more suitable workshop than that provided by Belmont House. When John Whitley had travelled west after his Lincoln Walton venture failed, Le Prince travelled part of the way with him. Lizzie writes, On the journey to San Diego, my husband collected some brightly glazed Mexican pottery and correlated the facts that Mexican potters of today, like the old Aztec fire worshippers, timed their firings to profit by the breeze on their land surface, which precedes sunset and by making fire more active, gives a final coupe de feu, which adds greater brilliance and translucence, and welds body and glaze more perfectly. Later, he concluded that a forced feed from a gas engine attached to a New York kiln, if properly controlled and directed by the firer, might be equivalent to breeze in Mexico. 
he solved the problem successfully in the kiln room of the New York Institution for the Deaf. And she added, untried fields held fascination for him. Apart from anything else, Le Prince's work emulating the prairie winds on ceramics reminds us that he was already innovating in the arts, and successfully so. His and Lizzie's work firing photographs onto ceramics in Leeds had been positively celebrated, and his ideas to recreate the effect of the dust wind in New York resulted in an impressive approach to kiln design. As a ceramicist, Le Prince, I feel, perhaps deserves a reappraisal, as does Lizzie. Moreover, Le Prince's ideas taken from his travels west involved one of the great influences of his later work in motion pictures. Lizzie specified what it was that Le Prince found so interesting. The idea that firings were timed to profit from the breeze that occurs just before sunset. Freshly made pots are hardened in the morning sun. Later, they will be stacked over a bed of wood. Then, covered with more wood and coal added from kitchens to start the fire. Now this is an open firing, which gains from the dust breezes which fan the flames. And this assistance from nature is important because such firings consume around half a dozen armloads of fuel, and wood is scarce in any arid terrain, and it's needed for food before it's needed for pottery, so it cannot be wasted, which is why one reason why the assistance of the dusk breeze is so important. I find this detail striking, because it speaks to me of the influence of limitations, the idea of innovation arising from the need to deal with some kind of scarcity or absence of materials, of time or of money, the ways in which whole designs evolve to deal with these kinds of limitations will be such a fundamental aspect of the Le Prince story that it will even play a part in the mystery of Le Prince's disappearance. Le Prince's ingenious work in the rooms he'd been allowed to use at the New York Institute for the Deaf and Dumb led to an important encounter. As Lizzie would write, It was while adapting a gas engine to make a kiln for glass firing serve also for the decoration of China that the prince made the helpful and valued acquaintance of J. H. Banks, the institution engineer. And with that, Le Prince's experiments would reach the next stage. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Shadow Traps. If you'd like to know more about this project or to support it in any way, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash The Shadow Traps. Thank you for listening.